Y'all, welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wargaming, where two guys who aren't qualified to talk about anything decide to talk about a game with hard math and chance. I'm Joe. And I'm John. And today we're picking up with episode 12 of the podcast, uh, continuing on with our uh, sort of series after the uh, intro series for new players, where we talk about some topics that are a little more broad and varied that apply to the general community and not just for new players. However, I think today's topic also is going to matter for them too, don't you think? Yeah, I think so too. This is a this is an all-encompassing topic that doesn't ever really fully end. <laughs> no, it's evergreen. Um, today we're going to talk about what I think will end up being a a, a bit of a spicy topic, if you will. Um, god day. It is very god day. Uh, <laughs> we are going to be discussing competitive stats for tabletop wargaming and asking the question, do they even matter for the average player? And before we just like answer that outright, we're going to dig into that a little bit. Um, because it's, I feel like if you don't define some of this discussion, you'll end up in the weeds and nobody wants to be there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, however, we're going to actually start doing something new on this episode. Um, for episode 10, we put out the call to uh, the people out there who listen to the podcast to reach out to us on uh, social media, and uh, one of you did. Uh, Shane, if you're out there, hey bud. Um, Shane reached out to us with some feedback that was very encouraging and very kind, uh, but one of the things he asked for was a um, sort of a hobby progress section where John and I just kind of talk about what we've been working on in the past week. Uh, and also a games played section. Now, of course, right now, in the year of 2021, we are still in the Rona period of history. Um, it, which is going to, which makes our games played section is going to be a little small for a while. Uh, but I think for hobby progress, this is, uh, A, I hope it's a cool thing for you guys to kind of just get up to date with what we're doing. But also, John, I'm going to be honest, I think we need the peer pressure. I I think that's just how it is. Yeah, I got a lot of Skaven and Tau to be painting. So we need some internet-based public shaming to keep us doing it. So, all right, John, why don't you go ahead and start first? What have you been working on this past week? So for painting-wise, what I've been working on is clan rats and cannons. Uh, <laughs> Oof. I've I've painted about 40 clan rats this week. I've painted one cannon. I'm half-painted another cannon. And uh, I'm in preparation of picking up a small lot of Skaven for the next couple of weeks. That'll double the amount of Skaven I have, meaning I'll have way more work to do with. Uh, and they're old Skaven, so it's going to be rebasing and everything else. I haven't even started basing dudes yet. That's going to take forever. Oh, God, yeah. And doing the big batches does suck. I mean, I feel like painting the sea of any horde army is always just kind of a rough process i have gotten it down to a science of these clan rats to where i can i drive rush like three colors and then i just do like one color like one layer and i have like maybe a wash that will go over and done yeah making time. a an a sort of efficient economical paint scheme that doesn't take you too much time. Probably wise. And with something like Clan Rats, like you're gonna 
you're not going to look at, like, each individual rat most of the time. People are going to look at, like, the horde of them and go, wow, you painted 200 models. And be like, oh, yeah, I painted 200 models. Uh, <laughs> crying in the background. Yeah, I feel that. Um, I had to have that same discussion with myself when I painted goblins. Because I, I think we've mentioned it on a previous episode, but I'm normally a detail-oriented painter where I, like, I, I'm a slow painter to begin with and I take my time with stuff, but... Uh, and like I fix all my little mistakes, but when you're looking down the barrel of like 160 tiny models, there's no time for that. Yeah, you just time. you just got to keep going. As Doug from Two Plus Tough has said, um, you know, as long as your models look three foot gorgeous, nothing else matters. Yeah, but yeah, that's cool. Um, I'm glad you're almost done with your lot. And if you don't get your Skaven lot, we could then start cracking the whip to force you to paint your towel. Oh, that's coming next week. Don't worry. Oh, okay. Kind of wait for the codex. Like, I, I'm going to start painting them regardless, but as soon as, like, the codex actually gets announced, I will be ramping up Tau heavily. Uh, yeah, I'm in a similar boat with my Tyranids. Um, I like the Tyranids, but right now they're in such a, a weird, weird place that it's hard to have um, motivation to really crank them out. But, you know, hopefully in 2021 we'll both get codexes for those armies and maybe we can... Uh, throws those on the paint table and maybe we'll get a world eaters codex that's just uh, it's, that's a me need yeah you could pray and hope we'll see i mean if we don't get a world eaters codex in 2021 i'm just gonna start flush terrors let's be real uh those are world eaters minus the spiky bits yeah <laughs> nothing else changes um i can tell you that you're gonna do really well competitively we'll put it that way <laughs> um yeah, that's cool. I'm only I uh, bring for six me, dreadnoughts. <laughs> yes, just six double fist dreadnoughts. Uh, for me, I have been painting my Lumineth. Um, I think we've got some pictures up on Instagram, or maybe not. If not, I'll throw some up there. Um, I bought the Lumineth box uh, last year when they put it up with like the little special edition codex and stuff, because. Like, they're earthbending Roman centurion sort of elves, which is not the flavor I thought we were getting when they said they were going to make high elves. Uh, but I love this so much more than, like, a haughty dudes in robes. Like, this is much more my flavor. Um, and with the announcement of all the cool new stuff that's coming, like the giant fox wind spirit and the kangaroo riders... And, like, the antelope attack yak? Like, oh my lord, I'm I'm on board. I'm really on board with all these, like, wacky zoo of an army. Um, so, to prepare for that, I thought I should go ahead and get everything from that box painted. So, I have been painting um, ten Arlen Wardens that are getting close to done. I'm making up a paint scheme as I go, so... It's a little more time consuming, but they're getting there. Um, and I also got some basing material in uh, to make them look all nice once I have them painted. And um, I'm hoping I can maybe next week when we come to record, maybe I can announce that I have completed that unit of 10 dudes. But we'll see. Um, they're very finicky models. They're kind of like painting Chaos Warriors or Plague Marines. Like there's just a whole bunch of like bits and bobs on them and like edges to get. Um, but they're cool to paint. Although those spears give me anxiety. Magnet trace, magnet trace. Oh yeah. They're getting magnetized. Um, 
I didn't realize how big those spears were, but they are like twice the size of the model itself. Holy crap. Yeah, they would break in plastic, so I'm making homemade magnet tray for that entire army. Just so I don't break it the first time I take it out to play it. Yeah, that'd be a shame. I'd cry. It'd be fine. Well, uh, have you? You obviously haven't played any games. I haven't played any games. Have you been doing anything like wargaming adjacent that you um, can talk about? I've been doing. I don't know if it's wargaming adjacent, but it is tabletop gaming. Um, you know, like we mentioned, it's the Rona period, so we're not playing like AOS and stuff. Um, I have been running a tabletop role playing game for some of our friends online. Um, my favorite tabletop role-playing game of all time is Werewolf the Apocalypse, because I'm a dirty environmentalist, and that is a game where you get to play eco-terrorist werewolves with magic powers fighting, uh, pollution and corruption. Um, and it's super fun. But I found out that, uh, four or five of our friends had never played it before in their lives and knew nothing about it. And they wanted me to run a game of it because I've been told I'd do all right running that their werewolf game. Um, so we started up a campaign for it and I actually, I ran that last week. Um, and it was a time. Uh, it was kind of nice to get the creative juices flowing uh, in a way that I kind of hadn't for a long time, just because Corona is what it is. Um, DMing was a little weird after going so long without doing it, but it felt kind of nice to get back in the saddle, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can agree. I've been doing a lot of world building for a Zwayhander Grim and Perilous RPG, uh, which is Warhammer Fantasy adjacent uh, that I'll run sometime in the future. So I feel that that tabletop desire in the Rona period. Yeah, you know, like, uh, it's a way to kind of connect with your friends, which is always good in this time period. But also I felt like for the past year, my brain just kind of was on autopilot. Whereas like, of course, John and I used to run, uh, LARP games and stuff together for like 80 people at a time. So it went from like churning creativity out all the time to a full year of just sort of white noise. And, um, I felt like I had to shake it off. So Running a smaller game that's uh, a tabletop has been just real nice for me. May I offer you an RPG in this trying time? <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to imagine a, a world where you're all werewolves? Very cool. <laughs> Would you like to literally like rip an oil pipeline in half? <laughs> and fight the spirit of uh. corruption that lives within it? How about that? Did you like playing Doom? Would you like to play a tabletop RPG of it? <laughs> That's what it is. It's furries and Doom. That's really the combination. Oh, no. Okay, 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 okay. I think it's about time that we dive into the topic. <laughs> or else okay, we're going to get trapped yeah. talking about <laughs> For people and Doom. who didn't like this section, blame Shane, not us. <laughs> or me. You can blame me, too. That's fine. But damn yeah, blame Joe. Uh, he's 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 soft and brushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I guess. Uh, okay, we'll get into this thing. How am I gonna? I can't transition from furry doom to this. How dare you? <laughs> How could you have done this? Uh, so, competitive stats. Let's talk about them. 
Um, so I think... Welcome to NPR. <laughs> <laughs> what? So uh, before we really, like, dig into it, I think we have to kind of uh, cordon off what we mean by competitive before we can really, like, tear apart competitive stats. Because I feel like um, there are some different understandings of what that means, because different people have various levels of sort of interaction with the hobby. Um, so for example, you might think competitive is like, oh yeah, like at my local game store, they had a tournament with like 12 people. It was very cool. And while that can't, that certainly can be a competitive environment where people are trying to win whatever the prize is. Um, I think for us, we are thinking bigger. Yeah, there's there's a drastic difference between like your local place that has like twenty players with like its own established meta and like Adepticon and LVO and these big tournaments in which there's thousands of players have conglomerated their data in a spot to like you have set like like genre lists that have like slight slight variations that dictate like advantage. Um, yeah. There's a, simply, there's a huge A difference in, like, caliber of players. Like, the people at these giant tournaments are probably some of the best in the world. Um, some of them do this as, like, almost a second job. Some of them as a job. Um, and two, there's just a lot more of them. And as anybody out there who has any understanding of statistics can tell you, sample size matters. Um... The smaller the sample size that you're testing in any given analysis, the more likely you could have a trend there that isn't indicative of the true uh, existence of whatever you're looking for. Not to mention that some of these armies and army lists are very finicky and only become like evidently good after they've been practiced with for hours upon hours. Like... Gene Steeler Colt, when they became competitively viable, were not, did not come out the gate competitively viable. People sat down and played hours upon hours upon hours at that faction to make sense of it to how it works, um, and figure out what the efficiencies for units and stuff were. Like, these are not just a dude found a combo and that combo is super good. Like, that happens. That's generally not the case. It's normally very meticulously kind of like, tested and played through for hours upon hours upon hours and discussed on different places than we discuss here for hours upon hours upon hours and you'll see podcasts about them all the time and those are normally the end result like that's normally after hours of work they have then founded a tournament talk about it on a podcast and show it to other people and that's picked up by the meta which is probably what you guys are referencing as competitive uh, well, as, because that's when it hits your ears. That's when you see it. Unless you're actively involved in the tournament circuit, which I'm confused on why you're listening to this. We don't cover that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, also, I think the one of the big distinctions is that at these large tournaments like LVO, Adepticon, CanCon, um, A, they're big, but also B, they track everything incredibly well. I mean, they're meticulous about... What army you're bringing? What sub-faction of that army are you playing? If you're an AOS, what, like, realm are you from? Artifacts and generals and, you know, all the way down the line. And that level of granularity and specificity 
allows for a whole lot of um, sort of deduction to be done from those statistics. Whereas some of the smaller tournaments, it's kind of like, okay, uh, this person played Maggotkin of Nurgle and they beat a Gloob Spike Gets player. Well, okay, but like, what sort of Plague Host was the Maggotkin player using? Or what sub-faction of Gits was the Gits player using? What realm was their army from? What artifact did they take? Who, like, who was their general? Um, those sort of interactions can play a large part in trying to get information out of it. And these big tournaments, they provide that. Um, and there are, are people in the community who, every time there is a large tournament, they go and they pull out all that data. Um, for AOS, uh, AOS stats is incredible. Um, they do good work. And I'm sure... Um, who does it for 40k, John, that you watch or listen to and read? I think it's Frontline Gaming. I think Frontline Gaming does. If not, Frontline Gaming is a normal place people go to for competitive like discussion and then find it from there. Uh, and then Goonhammer is another site that will like discuss things and break it down and explain it in a much more like normal terms. Uh, if you're interested in, in learning more about the competitive track, I definitely will push you in that direction of Goonhammer and Frontline Gaming. They both have pretty good coverage about that. Um, War Podcast talks about specific lists in depth as well, and statistically why they work. Yeah, um, it is hard to explain how different of a world competitive scenes are than, like, your average player's game. Um, it's just a whole new ball game. And, and so much so that I've actually never gotten into that scene. Like, I've never gone to a giant tournament, largely because of two reasons. One, I'm just not like a hyper win sort of minded person. Uh, but also, two, it's friggin' intimidating because <laughs> it is like the caliber of players and the danger of the lists are on another level. Yeah, I mean, it, it is something we have both discussed going and attending. Maybe not not to necessarily play, but to, like, see and look at and, like, it's an atmosphere. I've gone to anime conventions, and I feel like that'll be very similar, but uh, different. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I imagine the, the crowd is a little different. Yeah, anime conventions can be a bit... Uh, party atmosphere and i don't feel like a warhammer 40k tournament is going to be very party atmosphere um but yeah like that's something maybe that'll be one of our like later finales like we go to our first competitive tournament and <laughs> bring back our report from the field <laughs> the, the the boys go to a competitive tournament get bullied by other nerds <laughs> <laughs> we are the away team we are the red shirts just the waiting to the get, Kentucky get annihilated gentlemen. The Kentucky Gentleman. <laughs> we gotta uh, get denim tuxedos. Oh <laughs> uh, yes. No, what I want. All right, I want to be. I want to wear my most comfortable flannel, but I will put a denim vest over top of it, and I will put uh, an embroidered patch all across my back and shoulders of the show's logo. That's that's the most dress up I could give you. And we got to oh, have fanny and I'll packs. And I'll wear my I'll wear my nice work boots. Yeah, the nice work boots and you got to have fanny packs keep all of our dice and stuff in. Like Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Primo. Uh I think that actually sounds kind of great. Not yeah. going to lie. Yeah, let I'm us gay. know if you're into that. Like cuz we're into that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, uh, generally speaking, like it is just, it is a, it, these tournaments are bigger and the people in them are just much more skilled. Um, and that's generally what we mean. And these stats, of course, are readily readable on the internet. And if you have ever been a part of any Facebook group for any tabletop wargaming that you are a part of, you have probably heard discussion about it. Um, Discussion's a really nice way of putting every time GW puts any sort of change down, everyone screams. Yes, uh, your sodium levels may rise every time you read one of these discussions. But you, you've probably read some discussions out there of people who have incredibly strong opinions about some of these statistics. And I think it is worth discussing, before we get into the big question of do they matter, I, I think we should put our best foot forward and try to talk about how you could use some of this information in your own gameplay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. There's it's not a zero sum game when looking up competitive stuff. You can you can gain a lot of knowledge about how your army functions, how like specific rules actually work, um and different synergies within like your army lists um for not just these games but all games. Um you can kind of you can get a deeper understanding of the game design philosophy behind your book and the general theme so that when you go to build a list, you might not necessarily build the competitive list, but you understand the direction it's going into. So you can make like some weird stuff. You can take stuff that is competitive or doesn't work very well and turn it into a fancy like, I don't know, uh, jank, I think is the term for it. Wouldn't you agree, Joe? Yeah, I'll go with jank. I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. What about you? How do you use some of these Excel spreadsheets? <laughs> so, uh, for me, largely I use them to fall asleep at night. But uh, sort of for playing the game, uh, I use them as sort of like guides to navigate whatever book I'm into. So, one, like I don't pick my factions based on competitive viability. It's just not a thing I do. And I don't advise most people to do. I agree. Um, but I do think that there is some value in looking at competitive players to help you figure out a book that you got because you're just super into it. Um, because they're going to see things that you can't. So, uh, for example, when I bought Gloob Spike, like when I got into Gloob Spike Gets finally, like I knew I liked them because they're insane and they're wild and I like a lot of the models and the lore. Um, but that book has a ton of units in it. I mean, an absolute ton of units and you could mishmatch them together in any combination you so please. And that can be overwhelming. Um, however, I looked up some of the lists that people were playing at tournaments and very quickly I could start to see, okay, so oftentimes they'll take like a loon boss. Okay. That probably means the loon boss is pretty good or Okay, they're bringing, like, a, a mooncap shaman in every list. Okay, that's probably maybe worth me trying to get myself. You know, okay, always bring in, like, a couple big blobs of goblins. Okay, cool. And then it looks like everything else doesn't necessarily have a trend, but is spiced to flavor. And that kind of helps me navigate the book, where I start thinking, 
okay, so here's like my core units. You know, here's my, my little caster and my loon boss and my two goblin blocks. And then I can expand from there. And that helped me wrap my head around a book that was otherwise dense. And I think that could be said for just about any faction, um, especially factions with a ton of options in them. Uh, it's not necessarily a bad thing to get some information from a more knowledgeable player on maybe what some of the more uh, valued units in the book are. And I think that even when you're playing non like casual, like when you're playing casual games with your friends, you still want to do well. Like you don't want to get wrecked. And so looking up how people in the competitive scene are building the cores of their army before they tack on all the combos and the, the things that they do to, to mix it up can kind of make it to where you're building from a decent foundation. Like I, play Skaven, I bring two blocks of 40 Clannerats, and I, then I bring Stormvermin. Why? Because that's a really good core. Like, that's that's just a good core. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that for some people, they might not know exactly how to build the core of their faction, especially with something like Skaven or like Gloomswake gets, where the options are multitude. <laughs> oh yeah, you they're can, everywhere. You can everywhere. easily build a list that just doesn't function well, and you have a bad time. Well, and especially in some of the more synergy-based lists where, like, keywords matter. Um, not all the keywords are on every unit that you would expect them to be. So you might think that, like, oh, yeah, this hero buffs goblins. That's a goblin writing something. It's a goblin. Well, in actuality, it's not. And if you look at a competitive list and you notice some of those things aren't run together, it might help key you in that, like, oh... Okay, I actually, this thing doesn't even function the way I thought it functioned. Yep. Um, because those are tiny little intricacies that really only a more seasoned player are probably going to notice. And I don't think there's any shame in using uh, those lists as tools to help sort of suss out that information. And yeah. I think also for some people, I know the idea of like net listing is out there um, where you just like get a full list from the internet and run that list. And while that's not necessarily my flavor, um, I could see why people would want to do it to kind of pilot a sort of, if you'll allow me the term, a top tier army and see if you necessarily do as well as the other person piloting it did. Um, I think that could be a reality check moment that could be valuable. Yeah. And I, I think that every game group is going to have individuals that get very into looking up the, the competitive stats for things. They're going to watch like six or seven battle reports, read a couple of articles, scroll Reddit and scroll Facebook groups, and they're going to find out that like, ah, oh, man, there was this Iron Hands list from like 2019 that was super powerful for Space Marines. I'm going to bring that to my local gaming group. And... Sometimes it's nice to know about those things so that you just don't do it <laughs> um, yeah. and, and understand, like, see the actual reasons why. Like, if anybody actually looked up that list, they'd realize that part of the reason why that list is so good is because it's impossible to move. Like it's You cannot kill anything. And that's just not fun to play with a person with. Like, I just, unless I'm in a competitive environment, I wouldn't want to play against that. Because that's not the point of the social contract I've made with this person. Yeah, I feel like it's not fun. Um, 
and knowing that you should avoid said synergies is valuable. So, no shame for me. Um, uh, some people are really into that, and I think it's totally valid. But I think that kind of leads us to the big question, where I don't think John and I are necessarily on the same page. Um, do these stats matter? And John, I'll go ahead and give you the courtesy of going first. What do you think? Do they matter? I think that they do. I think that in the current time that we live in, with the internet being so prevalent in every type of gaming, even if it isn't um, by nature of being on the internet like video games, and it's an in-person game like these games are, people will trend towards the most powerful thing. Uh, people want to win. People want to do these things. And uh, unless you in your group have somebody that is knowledgeable of these very powerful lists, these very powerful factions, and don't kind of be a safety net for the occasional new person that might come in or stranger or somebody else who might show up with like the super powerful list that you know nobody in your group can really play against and be like, hey, maybe you shouldn't bring that. Like you're going to give them a bad time. Or maybe let your friend know that, like, hey, that's going to be a super powerful list. Expect this before you do it. You play the game. It can lend to having a bad time and cause issues. So staying knowledgeable about what that other side is doing is good. So that you can help shape how you and your group play games. And so to prevent opportunities for people to get super upset and kind of quit the game because somebody was a jerk. But it sounds to me like that there is more of a social issue rather than a, a sort of st competitive statistic issue. Like that is, um, as we put it in our previous episode, a breach of a social construct that was just uh, sort of brought on by turditude. I'm going to use the word turditude. That works. As long as you allow it. Um and it seems almost like a separate issue to the competitive stats themselves, you know? I can see that. Um, but at the same time, I feel like you're going to have somebody well-meaning or not do something to play a game. Like, there's there's lots of people who come from playing video games, who come from playing, like, Magic the Gathering, who think that the game is like that. And this game is so drastically different from those kinds of games in that, People tend to not chase meta, um, especially in a casual environment in this game, because it's expensive to do so. Like there, it is very expensive to do so and time consuming because you got to paint them. Yeah, it's not like rewriting a character in World of Warcraft, like you, or like making a new character. Like you're gonna dedicate a ton of money and a ton of time into an army, and if you're only chasing the flavor of the month, then you're gonna end up like falling behind. And I think some people like I'll use Tau as an example. A lot of people got into Tau the last two editions and people got into Tau and they were like, all they saw online was, well, shield drone spam, riptide spam. And like, that's it. Just three riptides, as many shield drones as you can. And then everything else just kind of tacked on. Well, that wasn't fun for a lot of people to play against. And a lot of people hated it. So a lot of people don't like playing against Tau players. And that wasn't the only way to play the book. Um, it's functional, don't get me wrong. It's just not fun. And I think there's other ways to play that book. Even though it's not super competitive and you might lose more often, 
I think it's more fun. And because people didn't look in and learn about those stats and understand that that was just the competitive play, that wasn't the whole faction. Some people have this connotation now with Tau that they're just a turbo faction meant to blow you off the table in turn one. Well, and I think that kind of segues me into my point that, like, I actually, hot spicy take, like, lava hot, uh, I actually think these stats don't matter. Uh, and for exactly for the reason why John just mentioned, um, a lot of these boogeyman lists exist in a bubble. Like, they exist in a competitive bubble where they show up at tournaments. But I would ask people, how how often have you actually played against them? Like, for folks out there, how often do you actually play against three Riptides and a bajillion drones? Like, how many of your just local buds threw out, like, 600 to $800 to build that list and run it? Um, for me, I can tell you the answer is zero times. Like, I... I have I have played against that zero times. Um, same thing with like the Iron Hands list that was the boogeyman forever. Like the busted Space Marines. Like how often did you play against that list? I played against it not once, never. Um, and I would venture to say that many people have played against it exactly zero times. Um, and that's because that. These two, I think these things are not very comparable. Like your average local meta versus a competitive tournament. Man, they are so different. Like the difference, A, in the uh, like skill of the players and the finesse in which they pilot a list. B, in the amount of money that they're willing to spend to build like an entire new army to handle um, whatever the boogeyman is for this month. And see the unintuitive ways that they will play to win. Like, you know, for example, let's say you're playing like a, a Gargant's list, like Sons of Behemoth, you just play giant dudes. The average person would run in and attack stuff, because of course you would, but not a competitive player. They tow a quarter inch into an objective and go, yeah, I sit here, that's my turn. Because they know that's how they win the game. Not by having fun, but by doing these little tiny things. And I think if you take scenarios from that environment and fear them in your casual environment, you are going to have radically different experiences. And maybe you will poop on your own fun for no reason. Uh, I'll give an example here. Of course, as you can tell from the YouTube banner, um, I love the Sylvaneth. I, I think they're great. They're the bee's knees. However, competitively speaking, dog turds. I mean, awful. Bottom of the barrel, like one of the worst armies in Age of Sigmar. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But generally speaking, they are just bad. If you, if you read competitive tournament stats, they're bad. They don't win anything. Like, I, I can't remember the last time I heard of a tournament where Sylvaneth took even top tables, much less first place. Now, when I was first starting, that turned me away from them because I thought, oh man, like they're probably just an awful army or like they're a terrible book or bad units or something. Like they're just horrendous. But because I love them so much, I got them anyway. Uh, Y'all, in my local group, my Sylvaneth 
Army is undefeated. Uh, I'm, literally, they have not lost a game yet. And that's because it's a different environment with different levels of skill and different armies. And, you know, my meta. local folks aren't, like, chasing the meta. Yeah. So my personal experience and the competitive experience, both true, but not related. And I think that is probably true for most people. And I would hate for anybody to poo on their own fun uh, because of what some spreadsheet says. Yeah, I can agree with that notion. Like, don't don't let the competitive stats scare you away from playing a faction, even on either side. Uh, we'll probably cover it in the future on how to play an overpowered faction or how to play an underpowered faction. Um, uh-huh. Because it, it is also daunting, like... Uh, I know you've struggled with it before, but when you're when you're holding onto a faction you've been playing for years, and all of a sudden a book comes out and they're just turbo busted, you just kind of go, "What? I can't play with my buds anymore." Um, yeah, it's terrifying. I'm in that place with salamanders now. Yeah, like you can you can get to a spot where it's very difficult, and learning how to still do like play that army without handing someone a win. Um, and still have fun is a, is a finesse. Same thing with an underpowered faction, learning how to play an underpowered faction to a level of competitiveness, even in a casual environment can sometimes be difficult. Um, especially if there's just armies out there that seem like they do your thing, but better, uh, rip my piece of chaos. Uh, the, (laughs) (laughs) they'll get a book eventually. Yeah. Uh, but I think I just, I think those two things can exist simultaneously in truth separately, but they don't have to necessarily be related. Um, and I don't, I, I don't think they are for, for most people. And I think that you can blend them. I think that you can blend the competitive circuit and the casual circuit with certain players and have a really good time. Um, but I guess that's not really up for us to decide. It's up for our listeners to decide. Yeah, so this is this is one where uh, I'm gonna definitely check the YouTube comments a couple of times because um, I want to know what other people's experiences are because there are some very strong opinions on this one, judging from Facebook group discussions and stuff. Yeah, uh, there are people who sort of like swear by and hide under their bed from some of these competitive lists, even if they might not actually see them. Um, but conversely, I can say if you do encounter a like really, 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 really unbalanced list at uh, casual play, it does suck. And it probably sucks even more than in competitive because you don't have the tools to beat it. It's a, uh, that could suck. Well, uh, Joe, with my bachelor's degree in Warhammer 40k history and mathematics, I can tell you that I can handle any list. <laughs> oh! Uh, we'll see <laughs> no no um no I'll have you play my buddy jake's osiarch bode reapers army uh before it got nerfed because mm. good lordy that was that was something yeah i'll bring beast of chaos and just cry it'll be fine uh <laughs> <laughs> no we, we'd love to hear you guys' opinion um hit us on twitter hit us on the youtube comments send us emails whatever you want to do Hit us up with some some feedback. Uh, Instagram works too. PM us, slide into our DMs. 
Uh, Ooh, yeah. I like that one. I like yeah. that one. Sounds bothered. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, Shane reached out to us and got his uh, sort of feedback implemented immediately. So if you've got uh, thoughts or criticisms or requests, whether that be sort of changes to the show format or future even uh, topics to cover on other episodes, send them to us. We're more than happy to look at them. Um, it really is helpful for us being this young of a podcast. Uh, to have feedback on how we improve going forward. And we are always open to it. Um, no matter what that is, we will try to accommodate. Because I think that's the only way that this thing's going to last for, you know, the long haul. Absolutely. Well, guys, um, that's going to be all for this episode. But we are going to keep on working on the next couple of episodes. Uh, we've got a list of topics that just keep growing. Um, and like John was talking about, I think it's almost time we start talking about some of those different uh, aspects of having a powerful army and a weaker army. And we might start busting into those over the next couple of episodes, which hopefully will be uh, helpful for some folks, especially considering where the games are right now um, from Games Workshop. I think that some of these topics could be helpful for people out there who are waiting on a codex or who just got a codex. At least, that's my hope. But that's been it for all of us uh, this time. Well, that's been it for us this time. Oh, words are hard. Um, but we'll see you guys in the next episode. That's been all of our opinions. Bonafide Kentucky Fried.